Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, Donald Trump is racking up massive U.S. debt, but hey, his economy seems to be doing better than most. And China is also not averse to a bit of money creation to fund growth. And not just in China, they have expansionist plans that seeing them investing well beyond their borders, whilst countries that don't believe in debt seem to be faring rather worse. So who's got it right? And can the American government and the Chinese really just keep getting itself further and further into debt? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So, Steve, President uh, Donald Trump is running a government debt of over $23 trillion now. But when he came into office, it was $18.2 trillion, So he's just added a mere another $5 trillion onto it. Mm. Uh, you might imagine that would sort of cause concern in the money markets. But uh, they just brush it off. Mm. The government spending increases, I guess. You know, no one's ever going to expect them to default on, uh, on uh, U.S. dollar bonds. Mm-hmm. So they just keep on issuing them. Yeah, I mean, there there is no financial limit to the capacity of a government to both create and finance debt in its own currency. Uh, it's when you've got to finance – this is the classic point of MMT. It's when you've got to finance in a foreign currency, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. But um, – and what we're seeing with, with America is – uh, so it's only legal impediments that the government puts in its own way that stop it creating indefinite amounts of money. So the, mm. the debt ceiling uh, was a, you know, was brought in to try to control the level of, of government debt in the uh, America back in the 70s, I think. And they continue having to vote to increase the level through. And Donald's just rammed right through the whole thing. So if you look at the, the important metric isn't the actual level of debt. It's debt compared to GDP. And if you take a look at that level, it's currently running at about 100%. Okay. Uh, now, it's that's as high as it's ever been outside wartime. Yeah. People say, well, there's going to be a point of default, yada, yada, yada. No. It, it, it can, it, it, and Japan has 240% government debt to GDP, rising from 40% back in 1990. So everyone can't. So it, it is all in U.S. dollars, obviously. So American China, debt is, yeah. Yeah. So China and Japan, they've got a lot of U.S. government bonds, but they've obviously they've, got, well, they've bought them in U.S. dollars. Yeah. Oh, well, the, 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 and that's the reason they've done it. They've got a, they've got a trade surplus yeah. with America, yeah, yeah. and it's a way of sterilizing the impact of that trade surplus on their own currency system. But otherwise, if you get the American dollars in, and you and you do you buy. Use use them to you know, convert to your local currency. You're boosting the local money supply, yeah, and that's going to actually cause your your currency to rise relative to the. So dollar. how is that? So how is that happening in actuality? So I'm a a Chinese company that's mm. not owned by the government. I'm trading with America. Mm. America's paying me. So I'm buying American. Um, sorry, they're, they're buying goods from me. Mm. They're paying me in U.S. dollars, mm. which is no use to me because I want to pay my my workers in the uh, Chinese yuan. Mm. 
So I go to the government, the government converts it to one yeah, you, for me? Yeah, it's true. You, you can actually like directly buy the bonds yourself. Yeah. And like I've, I've bought Australian government bonds myself with Australian dollars, obviously, yeah. some years ago. So individuals can go and buy it. Predominantly, it's the finance sector that does the buying. And what happens as well is a, a company, which is an industrial company, will uh, sell uh, you know Chinese um, solar cells to mm. America and in return get American dollars – uh, as, a, as, a, as a payment, right. and it then transfers those American dollars, takes it to its own bank. The Mary, they take it in, they, they pass the dollars on to the central bank and get renminbi in return, and that turns up in the account of the, of the local, which was the way, the way they paid their wages. Um, but it also... Uh, but the central bank's got all these U.S. dollars now. Or they convert them to U.S. US uh, bonds. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you go from non-income earning... Uh, currency and just like it's actually a database entry these days to having bonds which at least give you some sort of yield. But double counted money there, haven't I? Because I've got paid in the US dollars and the central bank's now converted it to my local currency and but it's still got those US dollars which it's now reinvesting back into America. It's it's not adding additional. It's it's Mm. you're sterilizing the the idea of converting into into bonds. Uh, is, is to sterilise the impact of that increase in currency on your domestic economy. Right. Okay. Uh, but like back back to the – Up to America- the tune of $1.1 trillion, it's fair to say. That's how much uh, yeah. China owes now, which but is see, a, like if you, if people, 5% people of People can say, well, what if China comes along and says, we want, we want these bonds, um, you know, we, we, we want to convert them to American dollars. Give us $1.4 trillion in return for the $1.4 trillion worth of, uh, of government bonds we're going to sell to you. Well, the Federal Reserve says, okay, we're going to put the number $1.4 trillion in your, in your bank account, effectively, and put the $1.4 trillion bonds in, on our, our bank account. Bang, what else you got? Yeah. There's absolutely no, no limit effect. for the yeah. capacity. So there's no way that's a threat to the American economy, as one way it's seen, the bond vigilante idea. Uh, the Federal Reserve can literally buy, and it did, of course, So they've got Q- no leverage then, whatsoever. So I mean, people that, say that, that doesn't give China any leverage over America. Mm. Okay? Uh, that's one of the myths people have about it. Um, it's the, the the capacity of the state, to cre- the central bank can create as much as it likes. Yeah. Lit- literally limitless because even with other banks, other banks have to worry about running out of uh, negative, going to negative equity. So then another bank creates a whole lot of money and buys assets with them and then the assets plunge in value while the liabilities remain constant. They can get into neg- negative equity and you're bankrupt. It doesn't happen to a central bank. So, so just as the, and this is maybe this is why the numbers keep on getting bigger and bigger oh, then. Oh. So just as the uh, central bank in America can create money uh, and issue bonds, oh. uh, similarly in China, they oh. can create money to convert that, those US oh. dollars, uh, which enables the buying of American bonds. Oh. There's money creation happening at both sides. As you're saying, on the Chinese side, um, they're not expanding their money supply because they're, they're using it to, to buy American bonds. In yeah. effect, in effect, they're adding to the American money supply. Yeah. So that's why you can play this game where you're starting to play with with exchange rates yeah. through all of this. Yeah, yeah. But the um, the interesting thing is, if you want to reduce the government debt level, how do you do it? Now, the linear way of thinking is you simply reduce the amount of debt. Okay, and the whole obsession about cutting cutting government debt, like this, this is hitting with Boris Johnson again right now, because he's arguing they 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 want to reduce government spending to make up for some of the stimulus happening in other parts. So all departments are told to find a way they can cut their budget by five percent. And the, the vision that gives you is that if you want to reduce the government debt to GDP ratio, you simply reduce the debt. Now there's two problems with that, and I've actually 
identify this in this cartoon book I've just finished writing, mm. ironically enough. Uh, I'd, I'd seen the effect once before on a government submission I made, which the bloody bureaucrats lost internally after I submitted the submission to a, a, a financial services inquiry before the uh, Theresa May election. But if you cut debt by, say, you run a surplus, okay, and you use all the surplus to pay your debt level down, then your debt level falls by the surplus. Now, that's the numerator of your debt-to-GDP ratio. What's your, rate, what's your, your denominator? The denominator includes the value of the government deficit. Mm. The output, the GDP is defined as consumption plus investment plus government spending minus taxes plus exports minus imports. Now, if G minus T is, is a surplus, so taxes are greater than government, you've reduced the GDP by yeah. precisely as much as you reduce the debt. And that's not where it ends because when you, when you, when you have a government taxing more than it spends, then that's taking money out of the economy. Mm. Quite literally, it's exactly what yeah. it does. Yeah. And that reduces the amount of money in circulation. And if that money turns over, let's say, twice a year, then you don't just reduce your GDP by the surplus. You reduce it by the surplus plus twice the surplus. So you end up a $1 reduction in the debt level can cause a $3 reduction in GDP. And by running a surplus, you can increase the government's debt to GDP ratio. But if you, so if you follow that logic, you can just keep on, governments can keep on spending. You yeah. can keep on running at a, a surplus. Yeah. But, but, um, but for how long? I mean, the, I mean well, uh, apart, not, apart from the, the question of inflation, because you're putting more money, there's, uh, this, there's a bigger money why, supply. But why, the idea of the government defaulting, we can write off. And yet, the U.S. did default, didn't it? In 1933, under Roosevelt, Liberty bonds that were sort of issued during the the, the, the First World War, mm. they were cashed in not for full. I mean, it didn't fully default, but people mm. weren't getting the full amount of money back from them. I would say it's, it's, what's often is more the case is going off thing like the gold standard. Mm. When this is the point that MMT makes again as well. When you're on the gold standard, you've got to honour um, the whatever your debt is in a certain number of ounces of gold. Yeah. So back under the gold standard, this is why. Uh, the gold standard was broken. Uh, it was set at 35 US dollars per ounce. And then America was running a huge trade deficit. A lot of that was accumulating in France. Mm. De Gaulle uh, finally had enough uh, American dollars. To buy all could, the gold. All the yeah. gold in Fort Knox. Yeah. And he yeah. literally threatened to do it. Yeah. And it wasn't just his threat to do it. Also, it was the behaviour of American corporations. Mm. As I remember reading a government report uh, back at that time, around the 73, 74 mark, where there was an inquiry, Congress, congressional inquiry into the impact of American multinationals on causing the devaluation of the American dollar. And it turned out that because they expected this thing to go ahead, they were expecting the gold standard to fail because they, they knew that America couldn't honour it with de Gaulle's threat. What they started doing was saying, if you owe us an American dollar's take a while to pay us. Okay. Mm. okay. They changed the timing of their invoicing and the impact of the change in invoicing by American corporations was the final, that was the straw that broke the camel's back or a, a bit more than a straw. Um, so the, the, it's, the, it's the fact you have some fixed exchange rate based on some commodity uh, that made that system unviable. Right. But in a floating exchange rate system, right. you, the, the barrier doesn't apply. So the U.S. could just keep on, and it looks like it is, just mm. going to keep on getting further and further into into debt. But it's, it's also keep... having a rising GDP, as you said. Yeah. So you look at the ratio, it, it's, it's stabilised at about 100% of GDP. Mm. Now, I had, uh, in writing the cartoon book, which I've just finished, uh, I haven't thought of a title for it yet, but that's something I've, you know, patrons can see that on the website, the uh, cartoon I'm doing with Miguel Guerra. Uh, one of the uh, little anomalies that my trio of 
uh, Tom, Dick and Harry uh, cogitate about is they can see this huge level of government debt after the Second World War and then it falls quite dramatically to 40%. And one of them thinks it's because of bloody inflation. Mm. No, it wasn't. Inflation didn't happen to the 70s. So the, the debt ratio fell while the government was running a deficit of about 1.5% to 2% of GDP. And the basic story of that deficit was it was adding to the debt, which is the numerator, but it was adding to the numerator as well. And given the fact that money was turning over roughly twice a year at the time, every dollar of new debt generated $3 worth of GDP. So the debt ratio fell because they're running a deficit. So imagine then Donald Trump goes crazy. And uh, not that What's he isn't already, <laughs> but even correct. more crazy. <laughs> and he doubles the debt, mm. level of debt, in a year. He just goes, you know, spends willy-nilly. That's going to be the classic inflation story. Right. Okay, because, that's the, that's the yeah, yeah. upshot. Because that, the, he's creating so much money. that Yeah. yeah. You, you go beyond the physical capacity of the economy to respond to that. I mean, the economy has an enormous amount of spare, of spare capacity. Mm. This is what people, again, don't realize. Because this whole neoclassical vision of equilibrium. Uh, gets in people's way. When you look at the level of capacity utilisation in America, I believe at the moment it's running at about 77%. In other words, there's 23% headroom in the manufacturing firms to increase output without needing to build more factories. Now, it won't be obviously that high, but there's an enormous amount of elasticity in production. The production level is determined by the level of monetary demand. So you could actually increase it quite substantially, and it's then, are you going to run out of inputs? Now, the only input you're going to run out of in that situation is not machinery, because Mm. there's 23% spare capacity lying around. It's labour. Now, it's still on that front, uh, even though the unemployment rate is is very, almost the lowest it's ever been in America in historic terms. They have redefined the unemployment rate every last about 18 times uh, over the last 40, 50 years, every last one of them reducing the recorded level of unemployment. When you look at the employment ratio, that's asking factories, how many workers have you got, okay, and dividing that by the population. So you can't fudge those numbers, and they, they are much more realistic. And the employment rate is not back to what it was before the 2008 crisis, or what it was back in 2000. Because mm, some people just So there's don't. still room. Yeah. Yeah, people have gone yeah. into, you know, you, you've given up. Yeah. Okay? Now, it's possible to still dramatically increase the demand in the economy without causing inflation. But is it just inflation? Because if, uh, so if, if the government keeps on issuing bonds, yeah. there's way more bonds available then there's going to be, you know, and there's only so many buyers for those bonds, then the value of those bonds is going to go down. Well, that's, that's, going to, that, that's going to push up interest rates, which is going to make it very difficult for everybody else to, to borrow that, to invest. That's the, that's the bond vigilante argument. There has never been a uh, issue of bonds in the American economy which has been undersubscribed. Mm. There's always been full subscription for the, and, and more than full. Um, and even if there isn't, the central bank can buy those bonds. It's, yeah. it's doing open Which market. is quantitative easing, basically. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's what they call open market operations. Yeah. So the Federal Reserve's always – it's it's stuffed it up by having the level of excess that reserves it has right now. But the Federal Reserve has always been involved in buying and selling bonds off the private sector to try to maintain its target interest rate. And it's got, again, an indefinite capacity to do that. So you, you can you're – you're an organization which can underwrite the issuing of your own debt. Yeah. And you can also you can finance the pay the, the servicing of your own debt. So that's the privilege of being American. That's the privilege of being a state. But okay. I mean, but we look at countries like uh, Greece defaulted. Iceland Greece doesn't have its own currency. Yeah, well, that's true. Iceland. Uh, Iceland had enormous amounts of foreign debt. 
Right. Okay. So, mean, these are, so this is the yeah, and this is the point I was de- leading to. It's yeah. the, a lot of these countries: Argentina, Uruguay, Russia, Moldova, Jamaica, Belize, Pakistan. Yeah. You, they've all had too many. They've owned owed money in, in not in their own currency. Yeah, when you owed in your because own people currency. didn't want to because people wouldn't um, basically invest in their currency. Well, you also, I mean, you could potentially sell. You know, um, is it rupee for Pakistan? Uh, yeah. Okay. You could sell rupee dominated uh, bonds onto the international market. Um, but the price you would get would reflect people's belief that your currency is sustainable. And if they was worried, if, if they thought you were issuing far too many bonds, then you'd get less. Uh, you, 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 your rupee would fall compared to the dollar, and you're actually issuing the bonds because you need the American dollar to buy foreign capital goods. Yes, I mean, that's it. If you're going to grow and you don't make a lot of stuff. You need you've the got US to buy dollar. Them, yeah, you've got to buy the machine tools. So um, what happens then if uh, the US dollar is no longer the reserve currency and everyone starts trading in the euro, for example? Where does that leave America sitting here with this uh, this part of the Well, this, I mean, I've, um, this is where I differ from MMT. I say that the it, it matters running a trade surplus uh, is, is a sensible overall policy. Keynes happened to – I happen to agree with Keynes on that front rather than modern monetary theory. Mm. Keynes was against – Saw, saw running a, a surplus as a negative thing for the global economy. So you had to force countries not to get too big a surplus. And the whole idea of the design of the bank Bancor was to make countries that did run a surplus, first of all, limit it to no more than 2% of GDP, whereas we're seeing some countries running 10% of GDP surpluses and have penalties. That meant if they got too much of a surplus, they were forced to pay taxes, which went to, thir- other, to third world countries as development funds. So that was all to, create, to stop major surpluses evolving and to stop countries under, and undermining others by running a surplus. So uh, if we go to an international currency, um, uh, America loses the exorbitant privilege of having the global reserve mm. currency. And that would mean that they could no longer run the scale of trade deficit that they are without having impacts on the value of their dollar. At the moment, they can do whatever they damn well like. Well, the dollar is held up, of course, by all of this, isn't it? Because mm. you buy U.S. You treasuries because you, you know they're never going to default on it, yeah, so you've got all this inflow of money. And you've also got to have American currency to buy, to buy goods because mm. you know, if you've got to buy oil, for example, oil, you buy oil with dollars. Yeah. There's now talk about bringing in euro purchases of, dollars, of oil and so on. And so America can see that weak, weakening its financial power, and that would be a damn good thing. It's it's the industrial power that's been weakened really by this because with an overvalued currency, American manufacturing can't compete with the rest of the world. Yeah. It's overvalued because of the financial sector. That gives the financial sector power, but it comes at the expense of the working class. So what about uh, China then? So China's debt is much less than the United States. I think it's about five or six uh, trillion dollars. It's mm. about half of GDP, I think, mm. isn't it, for, yeah. for China? So is that so? Why is it so much less? And does that mean it's much less of a? a, a, a well, we were saying it's no concern in the United States. Is it's it, no concern it, in general, s- particularly running a trade surplus, which is what China is doing. Uh, but that, so they could just keep on borrowing. So why aren't they? Why aren't they? I mean, I mean, they, we know that they are because they're building high speed rail and yeah. you know. See, when you do it, if if, if you then again the, the whole question about the creating new money by running a deficit, plus the new money turning over rapidly as well meaning each dollar you add might add $3 to GDP. So your debt ratio doesn't rise. It can actually it'll stabilise at a low level. So China's really behaving like America did in the 50s and 60s, 
running substantial deficits, not thinking about it particularly, and because it's running a deficit, its government debt-to-GDP ratio has fallen, or is mm. falling. So it's uh, the analogy I give in the cartoon book, and this is giving away the jokes to some extent, but they, yeah, <laughs> uh, is that it's it's just the same situation as being in a car and getting into a skid, going around a roundabout. Mm. If you're an amateur driver, yeah. and I'm an amateur driver, uh, you, t- you instinctively turn the wheel in the direction of the roundabout which will mean you spin even more. A professional driver gets into a skid and turns the wheel in the direction of the skid. Yeah. So you turn left to go right. Now, that's a bit like you, you run a deficit to reduce your debt ratio. Now, that, that level of uh, nonlinear thinking hasn't obviously hasn't sunk into any politicians around the world. But when you look at it empirically, that's what works. So China could just say, well, okay, we are just going to keep on borrowing to expand mm. yep. for infrastructure. But similarly, which is what they aren't doing, they mm. could say, well, okay, we're also going to use... Uh, uh, a lot of our own money for state-owned companies where the profit motive might not be as important as seeing the company grow. I yeah, mean, you and also say- you're building the, the Silk Road, you know, the, mm. the, one, the, the One Belt Initiative. Yeah. Um, and, and that The Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. That, that is a major reason why China is growing successfully still while America is stag- relatively stagnating and certainly Europe is stagnating. Yeah. They're not fixated on running a surplus. And running a surplus is actually counterproductive, or running at a profit for for businesses. You know, one yeah. those 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 state-owned uh, uh, properties. So, state-owned mm. companies. Uh, this is a World Bank report from two thousand. So, yeah. I haven't been able to get more accurate figures. Yeah. But back then, the the GDP of China came from thirty-seven percent from the state sector. 12% from the collective sector and 45% from the private sector. Mm. The state sector included all those state-owned companies, so they can just borrow as they need to without any profit motive. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, how can anybody well, it, compete it, it, against it, it, that? It's like an extension of the Treasury and the central bank, and, and they're using the money creation capability to expand economic activity. But on a global basis, how can you compete against that? If, if they could say, if you, well, we, we're going to print our money to make our companies uh, and we don't care whether they make a profit or not. We'll just, well, we'll I mean, just that, print more money for that's them. That's the, the government. That, that, that's seeing those companies as basically as a wing of the government, mm. basically a way of distributing money, government money creation. And in that sense, the, the state doesn't have to run at a profit, doesn't run it as a profit. Uh, it's a way of spending money which the private sector then gets and can then invest and spend. So you, you, my fundamental way. If there's looking, any any private sector left, huh? if there's any private sector well, left, the, the private sector has grown from zero to yeah. that level in China. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was back in the days. I was back in eighty one, eighty two when the private sector was zero percent of the economy. Um, so this state uh, creation of money uh, and exploiting you know, cheap labour as well, of course. Um, has led to an expansion of the private sector. Mm. And this is the whole idea that you've got to make the private sector public sector smaller to make space for the public sector, for the private sector. It's actually in reverse. If the, if the government's creating large amounts of money, which then turns over rapidly in the, in, the, in the private sector, you can actually grow the economy, the private sector, by increasing the amount of government money creation. And this is the MMT point again. And, and you know, I, I, that's what, with the cartoon book, I've got an accompanying model people can play with and see the effect. And it's simply if the, uh, the government debt creates money which turns over more than once and adds demand when it's first created, you get, you know, you, you get, a, you get a double whammy 
at least, on your GDP for the single whammy on your debt, it's a decent return. So, in uh, by the way, this uh, this cartoon book has got to sell out on day one. You've plugged it so much now. It's I mean, I'm promoting like crazy. People will be queuing around the block to get their copy at midnight. Uh, So, in America, so they keep on printing money. The only thing that they, the smart people who are sitting behind Donald Trump, the only thing they've got to look out for is signs of inflation because they've got they've created. Well, they're trying to create inflation as well at the moment. Yeah, that's right. So it's less of an issue right now. Yeah, absolutely. But if they create it and it starts to run away, if it was ten percent per annum, yeah, they'd, they'd. have a concern. But, that, that, but that, that, again, that requires wage demands. Right. But that's the only constraint they've got, really, in America in terms Actually, of... Cre- because they don't worry about a trade deficit. Right. But, you know, they're, they're free of that wage. In China... I mean, the same thing would apply, mm. obviously, if they created too much money. But they, they're, they're also a rapidly expanding economy in terms of the number of people who are contributing and participating in that mm. economy because mm. they've got such a, 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 a big workforce as well. So mm. I suspect it's less of a going to be less of an issue for them. So what what are they what are they keeping an eye on as they're looking at government spending increase and they can go so much further than America because they're so far behind. With so much more potential, really what, what are they going to be looking? At? When are they going to say we've got to slow down now? I don't think for well, I think the only thing we would slow down would be environmental, mm. um, and uh, of course the coronavirus is going to cause one hell of a slowdown no, no matter what. Yeah, at the moment, term. Yeah. so it's it's more panic about the ecological sustainability of what they're doing. Right, and then the concern is also uh, about the private sector uh, debt, and you know, and the private sector is the problem. Yeah, it's always the private sector that ten billion which is tied up in the. Shadow banking sector, or more, who knows? Yeah, really. well, yeah. I mean, China had the highest rate of growth of private state debt, debt to GDP in human history. Mm. Uh, and now, now it's what you've got is companies that, you know. But then they just buy those companies. Huh? If you've got a company that's heavily in debt, then the government just says, okay, we'll make you a state owned enterprise with the money we create. Problem which, solved. which is one way they're going about it. That's true. <laughs> and it just seems so easy without yeah, any, it's, without any control. It's, it's, and this is, it's, it's the power of, of, of having your own treasury. Mm. And the, the real thing is using it to harness the creation of new physical resources. So Boris Johnson's not doing any of this. No. Uh, and obviously in Europe, it's the, it's the same deal Europe as well. Europe is totally Fis- suicidal. Fiscal. That's why Germany, Germany is currently falling into recession. You know, right. The country that benefits from the euro. Um, that has the technology is going into recession. That's a sign of how but, stupid it is. To but could to they money. pull it off the, in the same way that uh, the US and China is? They could reverse direction. The whole obsession with keeping government debt below 60% of GDP and deficits below 3% and aiming for a surplus is a childish misunderstanding of the nature of a macro economy by thinking it's like a household. Right. And you're trying to say we must make sure that our expenditure uh, is less than our income. That is physically not possible but at the, the aggregate level. Expenditure but, is income. But there are economists who've shown that as, as government debt has increased, mm. uh, d- that uh, growth has started to slow. Yeah, that's uh, Re- 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 Reinhardt and Rogoff yeah. with a piece of shit mathematics pulled apart by a, by a master's student. Uh, errors in their bloody spreadsheet, crazy classifications. One year in New Zealand was equivalent to 30 years in of European data, it's garbage work. I mean, the only the only thing I can say in favour of Reinhardt and Rogoff's work is that it makes Nordhaus look okay. <laughs> so that's discredited, and no one else has shown that. It's, it's, no, it's never. It, it was a completely fabricated number. Mm. Uh, it was just the way they the way they bin data together. It was actually an unrefereed paper. Mm. Now, I'm not I'm not a total fan of refereeing because I know how refereeing can go wrong. But it was just a working paper, and because it said what politicians themselves wanted to hear. Because the politicians have the obsession about you know managing the, the government's money well and the whole saving money obsession that that uh, that's part of the the zeitgeist these days, they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, 
and it was only a couple of years later it was proven to be wrong. So where does this all end then? If, if, if the situation in China is where if, there's, if we've got an issue where you've got high private debt and they could just buy mm. that private mm. debt, in effect, the state could buy, buy those companies, mm. nationalise those companies, uh, and America goes, well, we could do that too. You know, watch us. Uh, if yeah. we've, you know, we're going to re-nationalise re- re- or nationalise industries that are that, that are struggling. Mm. Like, well, if, uh, you know, he, uh, Donald Trump could just say, right, I'm going to buy all the farms in in, in America. Mm. They're, they're all going to be state run. Be rather a shift to the American psyche, but it, that that would be the end game of of what we're talking about. Where does it all end then? You you, you are you, you are talking you, about communism at the end no, of all you're this. Talking, aren't you? You're talking about the governments creating money, which they've done um, since sumerian times mm. um and the the government has a role as creating the currency that is used for commerce within the region of its currency's effectiveness and it just get used to it mm. the private sector uh needs money to con- to spend the government often is the is the source of creating that money where the money doesn't come with the debt attached at the same time okay the debt's hold, held by the government itself not by the person who receives the money and christine de has done some excellent work on this looking back at uh the uk england pardon me after the uh collapse of the roman empire and you basically went from a you know this moderately sophisticated society under the Romans to pretty much subsistence for some time. I've forgotten which king it was, but there was some king somewhere in the kingdoms of England at the time who invented his own currency. And within a few years, that part of the country was booming. Uh, Creating a monetary system actually enabled the physical system to grow. Do you think there's a sort of like a... A, a realistic ratio of uh, of how much of GDP should be generated by the private sector and how much of it should come from the public sector. Should, oh, it, be, that, that, should it be about fifty fifty? Do you think? No, not that. Not I, I'd go for a bit lower for the government sector. But however, uh, if you go back before the, the uh, Great Depression and the Second Second World War, in America, I think the government was of the order of five percent of GDP. Now, the reason it exploded so much was the disaster of the Great Depression, mm. which was actually caused by the government to some degree, caused by the government, the Calvin Coolidge government in the 1920s, running a 1% of GDP surplus every year. Yeah. Being absolutely um, proud of themselves, you can find it in his State of the Union address, uh, that, that they'd reduced government debt by half, from 30% to 15% of GDP. What was happening at the same time? Private debt went from 45% to 100% of GDP. Mm. So, first, 55 to 100%. So, there's a threefold increase in private debt compared to the reduction in government debt. And what was most of that money being used to do? Buy shares. Yeah. And this is one thing I did again in researching a cartoon. I found a factoid that I'd, I'd never actually analyzed before, and that's the level of margin debt as percentage of GDP. Now, at the moment, it's running at about 3%. And there's only two other times in, in the history of most people on the planet that it's been higher than that. That was 2000 and 2008. Back in 1929, 12% of GDP was margin debt. Mm. That's why it was the roaring 20s. Just not productive use of money at Just all. Just gambling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 you know, speculation. So HS2 in the UK, we ju- you just say, yeah, bring it on. It costs a lot of money, but that doesn't really matter because it's uh, it's government money. So long as you're, bu- you're buying British steel and uh, you know you're not spending money in in foreign currencies, just uh, keep on keep on spending. Yeah, again, that looks like it turned to a white elephant as well. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm ho- I'll hold judgment on a particular technology. But the but the intent in terms of financing. Yeah, just yeah. go ahead and finance it. You don't have I mean, to. You at least at least you're going yeah. to employ people. Yeah. And uh, it's it, there's going to be spin-off benefits from yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the only the only downside then, apart from that that inflation issue, is is just 
the, the operational issues around in a project like that, for example, but this is going to apply wherever there's government money. If there's government money and everyone knows there can be lots more of it, then they're just going to push their prices up. So you've got and to find what, a way. That's what, where you get ridiculous things like the, F, or the FA-18 or that uh, ridiculous stealth fighter is in America, the enormous mm. costs, no limits on it. You do want to have that, that private sector discipline on the on the on the create on the how the money is used once it's created by the state. Yeah, and uh, like I, I, I don't so outsource. You don't outsource more well, than created. Out, outsourcing, I mean, you, get, you get ripped off. I mean, there's been a fair bit of that being done by the various aircraft corporations in America over, over many of the military contracts. Right, but, but if, I, you, if you say here's a government, for example, yeah. let's take HS two. Okay, yeah. we're, we're going to build this. Uh, the government could build it, and uh, and inexperienced people perhaps would be negotiating contracts with suppliers mm. for. Bits of that network, but if you had uh, if you had a private company that was doing it, or a series of private companies mm. that that had uh, had other jobs as well, then mm. they may be in the position to say, "Well, okay, our profit is determined on getting the costs from suppliers lower." Yeah. So then they're going to negotiate harder than the government would. Yeah, you want to get decent contracts, and they also like I don't want to see government money spent on having more bureaucrats to evaluate the research output of academics at universities, for example. I would like <laughs> to see more money created giving students fee, students a. Uh, a, you know, a stipend to go and spend in the local shops. Mm. So it's there, there are productive and unproductive ways to create that government money. Yeah, definitely. All right, but it can keep on going. Yeah, there's no limit to it. All right, well there we are. There's good news. Uh, good to talk, Steve. <laughs> Catch you again next time. <laughs> okay. So long as you're spending in your own currency, of course. And this is surely very relevant just as we start to deal with this coronavirus. How do we afford to tackle that? Well, maybe it's not a problem. We just borrow the money so long as we are using our own currency. Uh, Look, we're not scheduled to talk about the coronavirus next week, but I wonder whether we should actually do an extra episode on that just to uh, take stock of where we are and how government should respond and the impact it's having on the finance markets and uh, how we try and change that happening as well if we need to. Maybe we'll do that next week. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Catch you next week for another edition of the uh, Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for listening. 